Okay, let's gather back together and get into the Word this morning. So as we reconvene, turn in your Bibles this morning to Genesis chapter 16. As we continue working our way through the book of Genesis, great time in the Word, great book of the Bible. A lot of incredible things for us as we go through, a lot of life lessons. You know, we, uh, we love the New Testament, we love the Gospels, we love the Epistles. Uh, but I tell you, the Old Testament is so rich, isn't it, with these life examples of people who were just living by faith and had no choice really other than to trust God, except we will find out this morning that when we choose to exercise the other option, which is to not trust God, that things are not going to go terribly well for us. So as you turn this morning to Genesis chapter 16, let's read together these verses and see what the Lord has for us. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, and she had an Egyptian maidservant whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, See now, the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I shall obtain children by her. And Abram heeded the voice of Sarai. Then Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, and gave her to her husband, Abram, to be his wife after Abram had dwelt ten years in the land of Canaan. So he went in to Hagar, and she conceived... And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress became despised in her eyes. Then Sarai said to Abram, My wrong be upon you. I gave my maid into your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, I became despised in her eyes. The Lord judge between you and me. So Abram said to Sarai, Indeed, your maid is in your hand. Do to her as you please. And when Sarai dealt harshly with her, she fled from her presence. Now the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness by the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, Sarah's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I am fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarai. So the angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit yourself under her hand. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, I will multiply your descendants exceedingly so that they shall not be counted for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are with child and you shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has heard your affliction. He shall be a wild man. His hand shall be against every man, and every man's hand against him, and he shall dwell in the presence of all his brethren. Then she called the name of the the Lord, who spoke to her, You are the God who sees. For she said, Have I also here seen him who sees me? Therefore the well was called Be'er Lahai Roy. There, observe, it is between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram named his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Lord, add your blessing to the reading of your word, and may you use your servant for your purposes this morning to accomplish that which is on your heart, to speak to us, to minister to us, and may we hear so clearly the words you have for us today in Jesus name. Amen. Interesting story. Many of us have probably read it at some point in our lives or at least heard the story told. Sarai, Abram, and Hagar. And in this situation they had now been dwelling in the land of Canaan for 10 years. Remember so far in Abram's life that the Lord had spoken to him back when he was living in his father's house, back in Ur of the Chaldees, and he had given him a promise, and he had said, Abram, get out from your 
country, from your family, from your countrymen, and go to a place that I will show you. And then after his father had died, the Lord spoke those words to him yet again. And then this time he obeyed and he went out and began to trust the Lord and he built altars to the Lord and began to worship the Lord as he traveled and just sought to see what the Lord had for him. And let's keep in mind, let's remember that Abram didn't have his Bible in his hand. He didn't have a scroll. He just had the voice of God speaking to him. And so he had to listen carefully. He had to stay tuned in for the voice of the Lord. And then we know that Abram had a period of wandering in his life where uh, due to famine and circumstances, he ended up down in Egypt. And as he went down to Egypt, uh, he uh, told Sarai, his wife, that because of her beauty, that uh, the Lord was, uh, well, he, he sort of reasoned that the Lord might not protect him. And so he said, I need you to lie for me. I need for you to tell them that you are my sister and not my wife, which was a half-truth. She was um, his half-sister via his father, but a different mother. And so as they went down to Egypt, you remember that a lot of bad things happened there because we read during that time that Abram and his family were in Egypt, that never once is it recorded that he worshiped or that he built an altar while he was there. And so um, during that time, he uh, nearly brought judgment on himself as well as on the house of Pharaoh. And when Pharaoh found out about it, and we can only reason as we read the passages, that perhaps the Lord revealed to Pharaoh that she was Abram's wife and that he should not touch her. And so uh, Pharaoh sent them away. And it was during that time that uh, Sarai was in the house of Pharaoh as she became one of his women, one of his harem, that um, he, as, as was customary, gave a handmaid, a servant to her because she was a very beautiful woman. And we now know that that handmaid was um, Hagar. And so when he expelled them from Egypt and said, get out and bless them with riches, he sent them with everything that they had, including the servants that he had given to them while they were in Egypt. And we had said before, and will remind us again this morning, that the time of Abram's uh, period during Egypt it became sort of a blight or a a negative blessing, if you will, upon his household. It it sort of cursed his his nephew Lot. It sort of sowed a seed of unrighteousness in Lot's heart, heart, and that's sort of what we believe caused Lot to wander off after Sodom and to go after the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And yet we also know that we're about to find out today that one of the other things he picked up during his sojourn Uh, in Egypt was this Egyptian handmaid, Hagar. Now, something we need to have in our minds as we study this morning and as we get into the passage is that really Hagar is pretty much innocent in this situation. She's a servant. She's a slave. And so in a sense, she's along for the ride because when she was there in Egypt, she was minding her business and her master appointed her to be the, the handmaid or the servant to Sarai. And then when uh, Abram and Sarai and Lot and the whole clan were expelled from Egypt, she was sent with them. Now, these 10 years, she's dwelt with them in Canaan. She's been a faithful servant for all of these years. And now we find out that in a sense, she becomes used or sort of an innocent bystander in the situation. And she had no option in this. You see, she was a servant. She had to do what she was commanded. So in uh, chapter 16, verse 1, now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. Not surprising because God said, when the time is right, you will have a child. And she had an Egyptian maidservant whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, see now, the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. You know, she was absolutely right. The Lord had indeed restrained her from bearing children. It was not yet the Lord's time. So her observation was correct, but her conclusion was incorrect. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I shall obtain children by her. And Abram heeded the voice of Sarai. Remember earlier in chapter 15, Abram said to the Lord one day, 
you know, Lord, we don't have any kids yet. I know you said we're going to have kids, but uh, in my household, there's this servant, Eleazar. Perhaps he should be my heir because that's the way it would have been if Abram would have died at that point in time. Since he had no kids, it would have gone to the head servant, and that would have been Eleazar. Remember in the, the beginning of chapter 15, as the Lord was ministering there to Abram so graciously, he said, nope, Eleazar is not going to be your offspring. It will come from one that I will provide. And so here we are now. Abram had had a question some years earlier. Now Sarai has the same question. And why does she have the question? Well, it's, it's normal, it's natural in some respects to question the plans of God, isn't it? Because we are waiting. We're waiting to see what, what God will do. God had given a promise to them. He said, I will bless you. I will make you a great nation. I will give you a son who will be your own offspring. And yet now they've been waiting uh, more than 10 years for this to happen, and it hadn't yet happened. So now Sarai says, well, because the Lord has restrained me, maybe we should help him out. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I shall obtain children by her. And we are told here that Abram heeded the voice of Sarai. You see, one thing we need to learn about waiting for the promises of God, and you know, there's kind of two categories for us today as we are waiting on the promises of God. There's those, those promises that he's given us in his word that have yet to be fulfilled. There's prophetic promises such as, you know, if we are born again into the kingdom of God and we've received the Lord Jesus Christ, by faith and we've repented of our sins and we're walking to follow him. We are now under the blood. We are now children of the promise, the promise of God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, one day, if we are faithful, and we just continue on with the Lord. Uh, when we die and go to heaven to be with the Lord, because the scriptures say to be absent from the body is to be present from the Lord. We will there in the presence of the Lord find fullness of joy, and we will find all of the promises of God fulfilled and realized in our lives. But you see, that won't happen until we stand in the presence of God. But along the way, God promises that if we are faithful and we follow him, that he will reveal himself to us. And that if we will honor him with the first fruits of our lives and just stay true to him and persevere, that blessing will be on our lives and exactly what that blessing looks like and how it will play out, you know, that we don't have the details of that. But then we have specific or unique promises such as God gave to Abram and as God gave to his servants all throughout the history of the scriptures. And often, you know, as we are reading God's word and praying, God might speak a promise to us. He might give us something that we can hang on to for our lives. Maybe it's a life verse that we follow the Lord with, or maybe you know, God has given us some specific promise just to us, and it's just between us and him. And maybe that has not yet been fulfilled or realized in our lives. And so we need to wait for the Lord to come through, for the Lord in his time to reveal his word to us. And so Abram and Sarai had the word of the Lord revealed to them. And remember, up to this point in time, God had spoken only to Abram. He had not spoken directly to Sarai. And Sarai had to trust in Abram that he was being faithful and hearing the voice of God. But now we come to this place where she came in to Abram, and no doubt she was distressed, she was troubled, she was worked up over this situation, and she said, you know, we just need to get going here, Abram. And so, you know how it is in marriage, right? When one of us becomes impatient and we begin to urge the other to move forward with something, and, and the thing of it is, in our marriage relationships, both of us ought to be walking with the Lord, right? The word says in Ephesians 5, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Prior to that, it said we were both to have our own walk with the Lord and we are both to be filled with the Holy Spirit and both to be seeking the Lord. You see, that, that is what we do before we get married even. Now, if we happen to get saved after we get married, it still applies. It's just a different situation. But when I have the, the joy and the honor of doing premarital counseling, I, I tell the couples, you know, before you, God brought you together, you had your walk with God, you had your walk with God, that, should, that doesn't change. That stays the same 
for all the days of your life. And you need to keep and to maintain your personal relationship with the Lord. No matter what happens after you say, I do, nothing changes that. You are responsible to be faithful to the Lord. But we also know that through the the concept or the principle of headship, that God has given the man a unique role in the marriage relationship. And certainly one of those roles is to lead the family into the grace of God and into the promises of God. We are to to lead as men lovingly and and hold our families before the Lord in prayer and to be an example and and to just seek the Lord. The best thing we can do is be an example to our families. Now here in this situation, it would seem that Abram has sort of another lapse of faith. Now his wife had a lapse of faith in that she came to him and said, I want you to go into my maid. Now this was perfectly legal. In this day and age, it was legal and normal for a servant, for a handmaid to be given by the mistress to the husband, if so desired, to be a concubine or to be a wife. But you see, God's delays are not God's denials. God wants us to be faithful and to wait. You see, it's, it's our own flesh, but often it uh, can be Satan as well whispering and saying, hey, God's holding out on you. Why hasn't God come through yet? Why hasn't the promise that he gave you so long ago come to pass? I mean, I imagine Satan's voice could have sounded something like this to Sarai. Did your husband Abram really hear from the Lord or was he just a crazy old man? Are you sure he hears from God? Like when he goes out to those altars, you're not with them. I mean, what's he doing out there? Is he smoking something? Or is he worshiping God? What's happening? God's delays are not God's denials. And we tend to fall into these periods where we rationalize and justify our decisions regardless of if they are true or not. And this is one of the great dangers, is it not, for us? And that when we get inside our own heads and we begin to think something, and we get discouraged, or we begin to question things, and we go to a negative place, are we truly hearing from the Lord at that point? Are we uh, listening to his word? Are we reviewing the promises of God and saying, okay, I have doubts, I have questions, I have fears, but am I truly remembering what God has said? And, you know, when we come to dark places in our lives or in places of uncertainty, we need to turn back a few pages to the last time God spoke to us. And we need to remember the promises of God. We need to review those promises. So we remind ourselves, okay, how did I get here? Oh yeah, the Lord told us to go to the land of Canaan. The Lord told us to leave our family and to go out to this place. And here we are, we're dwelling in this land. We're waiting on the Lord. He has not yet come through in his promises, but that's not what happened here. Sarai became impatient. Previously, Abraham had become impatient. And the Lord spoke to him. And here, the Lord didn't speak directly in this moment, but you would think in this moment that what God would have done would be to have spoken through Abram at that point to say, okay, listen, sweetie, I know you're upset. I know you're tired of waiting. I'm tired of waiting too. I don't know when he's going to come through. I don't know when it's going to happen. At some point it'll happen. I just don't know when it's going to happen. Now we are told in the book of Hebrews that God was waiting until their bodies were as good as dead, and then he was going to bring it to pass, but you see, they didn't know that. And so they were in this situation where they had to wait upon the Lord. So we have to be careful of rationalizing our decisions and justifying ourselves both before God and before men. You know, and most often, we're just trying to convince ourselves that what we're doing is the right thing, isn't it? But too often we bring ourselves to a place of self-deceit. We have this beautiful passage in Proverbs chapter 3. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him. And he shall direct your paths. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. It will be health to your flesh and strength for your bones. You see, while we wait patiently for God to work, 
he builds into our lives. He increases our faith. He builds our character. And he grows us in perseverance while we wait. Verse 3, Then Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, and gave her to her husband Abram to be his wife, after Abram had dwelt ten years in the land of Canaan. So Sarai at this point had succumbed to the thought that God needed her help to move things along. Abram also bought into the idea, obviously, because he, he took her, he believed her. And so we're told in verse 4 that he went into Hagar and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress became despised in her eyes. You see, faith and patience, faith believes the promises of God. Hope anticipates the promises of God. Patience waits for the fulfillment of the promises of God. I'll say that again. Faith believes the promises of God. Hope anticipates the promises of God. And patience waits for the fulfillment of the promises of God. But Sarai and Abraham came to the point in their lives where they felt they could no longer wait patiently, wait in hope, and have faith that God was going to do it in his time and his way. I think they believed that God was going to do it, but I think they also believed at this point they had become deceived in thinking that God needed their help to move things along in their lives. And it says here that when she saw that she had conceived, that her mistress became despised in her eyes. And this begins to open up a very important principle to us, doesn't it? The principle is this. You and I can't possibly know the consequences that our sin will bring. We can't possibly know how it's going to work out. Because here's what happens. Here's the, here's the deception. Here's the falsehood of our pride. And that's what this was in this moment. We think as we work it out in our minds, and we all do this, right? Every one of us does this. I do it, you do it, we all do it. We think, okay, if I do X, then Y will happen. And when Y happens, that will cascade into Z, and then Z will happen. And then these other things will happen in my life, and I'll move into that place where life is greener in the other pasture, and things will be awesome, because this is how I envisioned it happening in my mind. Now, raise your hand this morning. I'm doing this for example only. If you can say that you have, you know, had these visualizations in your mind of how your this is going to work out, and it's worked out exactly as you thought. Anybody? Okay, no, that's what I thought. Because it doesn't work, does it? It doesn't work when we depart from God's will, when we trust in ourselves, when we do the reverse of Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, where we do lean on our own understanding. And rather than acknowledging God, you know what we often do? We ask God to bless our plans. And let me just tell you, that's a bad idea. It's a bad idea to ask God to bless your plans. Why? Because your plans weren't conceived in the heart of God. They were conceived in your heart. And there's a, there's, Proverbs are just filled with so much wisdom, right? Man plans his way, but God directs his steps. We need to say, like James says, we ought to say, if the Lord wills, we'll, go to the, the, we'll do this or that. We'll go to such and such a city and make a profit and, and do these things. So we submit our plans to the Lord, but that's not what happened here. And so when, her mistr- when uh, Hagar looked upon her, her mistress Sarai, rather than feeling blessed that things had kind of worked out the way that you know, her, her mistress had said, uh, she began to despise her mistress in her eyes. We aren't told what went on in her heart, but I'm sure it was something like this. She gave me to her husband. Her husband loved me. And now I've become pregnant, just like that. They've been prying, trying for more than 10 years. And now it's like, well, what was she thinking? Well, God must like me better than he likes you. God must be blessing me. That must mean something's wrong with you. I mean, who knows what people think? And so her mistress became despised in her eyes. Then Sarai said to Abram, my wrong be upon you. Now, 
Here's the first example, or maybe the second, of blame shifting in the Bible. It's a great study in psychological awareness here this morning of how we do something, we conceive something, we sin, it's our plan. <clears throat> we talk to somebody about it. In this case, Sarai talked to her husband, Abram, and convinced him, and he said, okay, yeah, it sounds good to me, let's do it. They did it, and then she blamed it on him. This is your fault. It's your fault because you listened to me. My wrong be upon you. I gave my maid into your embrace. You loved her. And when she saw that she had conceived, I became despised in her eyes. The Lord judged between you and me. The Lord, Lord reveal who's really right here in this situation. And you see, now what's happened is this. The barrenness in her life, which was God-ordained, had led her to a place of bitterness. So today, here's a principle, another principle for you and me. If you are in a place of barrenness as you're waiting on the Lord and, and the promises of God may not have yet been fulfilled in your life, whatever they may be, don't let barrenness lead to bitterness. Bitterness is a poison, we're told in the New Testament. Peter spoke to uh, the man Simon, who was a sorcerer, and he said, For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. We've been told that bitterness is like drinking the poison and waiting for the other person to die. Romans 3.14, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. You know, Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Certainly bitterness can drive us to speak things that are not good, that are not wholesome, that are not true. Paul said in Ephesians 4, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And then in Hebrews 12, we are told, looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. You see, bitterness is something that we should not trifle with. We might look at it, at it or think of it as an emotion, but bitterness is a deep sin that can grow into our hearts like a root that twists down into the ground and trying to uproot that, that evil sin of bitterness can be so difficult, it can be so painful. So don't underestimate the power of bitterness. And if you find yourself this morning in a place of bitterness in your life, over any situation, over any thought, over any relationship. Let me encourage you this morning to turn to the Lord and to cast your bitterness upon him and to allow him to minister to you and to heal you. So Abram said to Sarai, verse six, indeed your maid is in your hand. Do to her as you please. In essence, he's saying, hey, I'm not getting involved in this. This, this, is, on, this is on you. And when Sarai dealt harshly with her, she fled from her presence. So Sarai was upset, she was angry, she was bitter. But let's ask the question. Let's always try to find out the root of the issue in our lives when we deal with these things. What was the root of the sin, of the anger, of the bitterness in Sarai's life? And the answer is, it was because she was upset at God. Because it was taking so long. And so because of that, that led her down this path. She chose to respond in an unwholesome and an ungodly way. One person wrote this, the detour is always worse than the main road. And when we think by getting off on the detour that it's going to be exciting or fun or interesting, we can rest assured that when we get off on the detour, on the side road, that the Lord is going to bring us to a place and it's not going to be good. They were unwilling to wait on the Lord. They rushed ahead with their own plans. They acted only to please themselves rather than to glorify God. They were not obeying the word of the Lord. And what they did certainly did not bring joy or peace to their hearts or to their homes. Now listen to this. George MacDonald said, In whatever man does without God, he must fail miserably or 
succeed more miserably. And whatever man does without God, he must fail miserably or succeed more miserably. You know, how many times have you heard of people who have made it big, who are multi-millionaires and billionaires, but they, they can't find satisfaction. They seek peace, they seek hope, they seek meaning in drugs and alcohol and relationships and sex and all these things. You see, success doesn't guarantee happiness. Riches don't mean that you're going to be happy. I mean, we all like to think, I'd like to try being a millionaire or a billionaire for a day. But is that truly the answer? You see, Abram here, unfortunately, had abdicated his responsibility. He had uh, some skin in the game here. He should have uh, stood up and said, no, we need to wait and be patient as uh, God had given us his promises. But we also find an interesting parallel here to what's happening in Abram and Sarah's life to when Adam and Eve fell in the garden. Sarai's action was parallel to that of Eve. Here, Abram listened to his wife, just as Adam listened to his wife. Here, Sarai took Hagar, just as Eve took the fruit. And here, Sarai gave Hagar to her husband, just as Eve gave the fruit to her husband, Adam. In both cases, the man willingly and knowingly partook. Now, the lesson here isn't men, that we shouldn't listen to our wives. That's not what it's saying at all. It's simply saying in those situations that the one partner, in that case the wife, had gotten off track and was not walking with the Lord and introduced a concept or a decision or a path to her husband, and he simply listened and did what she said. You know, I'm sure if you're married here this morning, you know it works the other direction as well, doesn't it? It's worked both ways. So this isn't pointing the finger at women in particular, it's simply saying that when one of us gets off track, the other one should be able to pull us back on track rather than getting off track and listening to the voice of the one who perhaps is not being wise and following God in that moment. Listen to this. However, instead of facing their sins at this point, each of the persons involved took a different course. And this only made things worse. Sarah's resolution was to blame her husband and to mistreat her servant as she uh, gave vent to her anger. She seems to have forgotten that she was the one who had made the marriage suggestion in the first place. Abram's solution was to give in to his wife and abdicate spiritual headship in the home. He should have had pity for a helpless servant who was pregnant, but he allowed Sarah to mistreat her. He should have summoned them all to the altar, but he did not. Hagar's solution, which we're about to find out, was to run away from the problem, a tactic we all learned from Adam and Eve. However, you soon discover that you cannot solve problems by running away. Abram learned that when he fled to Egypt, um, that you can't run away from your problems. There was peace in the home for a short time, but it was not the peace of God. It was only a brittle, temporary truce that would soon fail. So now we find out here from Sarai that when Sarai had uh, dealt harshly with Hagar, her servant, that Hagar fled from her presence. So now in verse 7, we find that the uh, angel of the Lord appeared to Hagar by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to shore. Now, what we miss here is two things. We miss the element of time and distance. They were up in Canaan, up where, just say, somewhere in the region of Jerusalem. But if you look at a map, she was all the way down in the Sinai Peninsula, just north of Egypt, uh, just off of the Nile River. So she had traveled many hundreds of miles in her journey as she fled from her mistress. So it's obvious that she was going back home. She was fleeing back home. The only thing she knew to do, you know, a, a young woman, unmarried, well, married to Abram, but not, you know, it was a arranged situation. And now she's pregnant and she's heading back to Egypt. And certainly it took time for her as a single woman to travel all that distance. 
So she ran like the Dickens, and she went as far as she could, and she got all the way down, almost all the way to home. And now she's resting by a well in the wilderness. And notice it says here, the angel of the Lord, several times. Whenever we see an angel of the Lord, it's referring to an angel, but in, whenever we see the angel of the Lord, the definite article in front of it, it's referring to what we call a Christophany, a Theophany, a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. Now consider the situation. Hagar, through no fault of her own, became pregnant because she was just following orders. She was really an innocent bystander in this, but when she began to despise her mistress, obviously she began to respond in a wrong way, in a sinful way. And then when her mistress began to harshly mistreat her, and of course we are not told the details of what happened, but it certainly is within the realm of possibility that she was beaten. Certainly she was ostracized. And so now she's run. She's gone all these miles, distance and time, and she's out there by herself, presumably, which would have been incredibly dangerous for her. And she's by this well. And who comes to her but none other than Jesus himself. Think about this. She's running. She's the one who's hurt. She's the one who's abused. She's the one who's broken. And the angel of the Lord found her, it says, I love how it says that, by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to shore. And he said, Hagar, Sarah's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? A great question, isn't it? Now, prior to Hagar coming into Abram's house, Hagar was born and raised in Egypt. She was born, she was serving in the house of Pharaoh and she likely, like all of the Egyptians, served pagan gods. And when she got connected with Abram's household, she got introduced to the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. She got introduced to Yahweh. She got introduced to Jehovah. And Abram, while he was walking with God, and often, of course, he did, as we've, we've already seen, he built altars and he worshiped and he led his house according to the plan of God. And, you know, we've already seen what happened when Lot came to him and they split and went their separate ways and how he handled that and how he handled that in such a, a godly and a, just a wonderful way. Hagar, no doubt, saw these things. And she saw how God had spoken to her master, Abram, and she saw how God uh, was treating them and how God had blessed them. And certainly it was a different household. It was a different mood. It was a different tenor in her life than what she had experienced in Egypt. And so now here she is and God is speaking to her. And she said in response to what the angel said to her, I am fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarai. Now, why was she fleeing? She's broken. She's destitute. She's pregnant. What's she supposed to do? And I want to say to you this morning, because I don't want us to miss this in Hagar's life, this issue of her brokenness. I suspect if we've lived any length of time whatsoever, we've all experienced brokenness in some way, and if you haven't, you will. So listen up. Psalm 34, the righteous cry out and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and saves such as have a contrite heart. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Psalm 51, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. You see, brokenness comes into our lives, yes, often because of our sin, but sometimes it comes into our lives through no fault of our own, through the circumstances of life. Things happen to us. You could have been raised in a home where there was abuse, where you had alcoholic parents or abusive parents. Maybe other things have happened in your life that has just seemed like nothing has gone right and brokenness is there. 
But rest assured that God hears the voice of those who are brokenhearted. God turns his eye and bends his ear toward those who are in a place of despondency. Psalm, excuse me, Isaiah 57, for thus says the high and the lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and the holy place with him who has a contrite and a humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. Then in Isaiah 42, a familiar passage, a bruised reed he will not break and smoking flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. You see, sometimes when we look at a broken person, we see a person of lesser value, don't we? Just a person who's constantly sad and broken and depressed and all those things. But that's not how God sees a person who's broken. He looks upon them with pity. He looks upon them with care. God looks at broken people and he says, now there's something I can work with. There's a person with whom I can do great things. Because you see, brokenness brings us to the place that there's only one place we can look, and it's to the Lord. You see, before we're broken, we think we have something to offer. Before we're broken, we think we can figure out something in life. We can plan something. Hey, I have skills, God. You know, these, these abilities you've given me, these gifts you've given me, man, I can use these and do great things for the kingdom. And I would say to you, you can, but not until you're broken. God allows brokenness into our lives. Yes, God even brings brokenness into our lives. You see, that's when the true value of a soul begins to be realized. For then God will begin to heal and to rebuild as he intends and as he desires. Then God begins to form and to bring change and to realign who you are and your values and how you think. You see, God hears, God sees, God knows, God cares. Therefore, 1 Peter 5, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care or your anxiety upon him, for he cares for you. So Hagar is broken. She's fled hundreds of miles as a young pregnant woman with no one out to the wilderness of the Sinai Peninsula. And here the angel of the Lord speaks to her. And in verse nine, the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit yourself under her hand. Whoa, I did not want to hear that, Lord. That is not what I wanted to hear. Why would I do that? Why would anyone in their right mind go back to the place of the brokenness. Go back to the source of where it all began. You see, the Lord spoke to her, and as he said these things to her, for her to hear them and then to begin to obey certainly took great faith for her. God is never caught by surprise. When he cannot rule, he overrules, and he always accomplishes his purposes. God is never caught by surprise. When he cannot rule, he overrules. He always accomplishes his purposes. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, verse 10, I will multiply your descendants exceedingly so that they shall not be counted for multitude. And it's interesting. God spoke six times to Abram and said, I'm going to make you a great nation. Your, your descendants shall be like the dust or like the sand or like the stars. And now he speaks to this poor, broken handmaid, Egyptian handmaid, in the, in the desert by a spring and says, I'm going to bless you. And see, what God is doing is blessing her through Abram, right? Because she went into Abram and she's carrying Abram's offspring, not the child of promise. We're soon, soon going to find out who this child is. But God is saying to her, I will bless you. You see, God didn't hold her accountable for Sarah's sin or for Abram's sin. 
I will multiply your descendants so they shall not be counted because there will be so many. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are with child and you shall bear a son and you shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has heard your affliction. The name Ishmael means God has heard. But he shall be a wild man. His hand shall be against every man and every man's hand against him and he shall dwell in the presence of all his brethren. Now this comes back again to you don't know where your sin's going to lead or how things are going to work out. Little did Abram and Sarai imagine that their shortcut would originate a conflict that would run for millennia and that oceans of blood would be spilt. Abram, the father of the faithful, had begotten a wild man instead of a child of grace and how tragic was Abram's expediency. You see, Abram and Sarai thought they could help God out, but what they ended up doing was introducing Ishmael, who was the father of the Arab peoples, through whom has now come several thousand years of conflict between the Jewish people, the people of promise, and now the descendants of Ishmael. So in verse 13, it says, Then she called the name of the Lord, who spoke to her, you are the God who sees. For she said, have I also here seen him who sees me? In that moment, as Sarah, uh, Hagar was before the angel of the Lord, before Jesus himself, just like the woman at the well in John chapter 4, and I see this as sort of a foreshadowing of that. Remember, Jesus appeared to the Samaritan woman. And remember, after that interaction, Jesus was speaking to her and revealing to her the thoughts and the intents of her heart. And she said, you know, who are you? How can you know these things about me? And here, the angel of the Lord, looking into Hagar's heart, speaking directly to her heart, bypassing her head and her logic, and saying to her, I love you, I care for you. Listen to my word, obey what I'm speaking to you. Go back to your, your mistress, to Sarai. And she says, you're the God who sees me. And now I actually get to meet face to face this God. And I believe she understood in that moment that this was the same God who spoke to Abram. And now she's beginning to understand something about faith. Therefore, the well was called Be'er Lahai Roy, Observe, it is between Kadesh and Barad, the well of the one who, see, who lives and who sees me. Now, if you've got to stop and take a break at a well, this is the place to do it, right? The place of the well of the one who lives and who sees me. This is the place we want to be drinking from, the well of his presence in our lives. So Hagar bore Abram a son, so she went back, she bore the son, she had the baby, and Abram named his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Now there's a miracle right there because the husband would name the child. But she no doubt went back and told him of the vision of the appearing of the angel of the Lord and that she witnessed that vision back to him, that appearance of the Lord. And as she described it, no doubt Abram had the, this sounds awfully familiar, this sounds like what happened to me. This sounds like the same voice, the same God who spoke to me. And so he believed her and he listened to her voice and he named the son Ishmael just as the Lord had spoken to her. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. So faith believes the promises of God, hope anticipates the promises of God, and patience waits for the fulfillment of the promises of God. Here at this point, they realize they've made some mistakes, that they had not conducted themselves properly, that they didn't wait for the Lord. And no doubt God is <clears throat> reminding Abram at this point. So it wasn't Eliezer, it's not going to be Ishmael, but it'll be one who is to come, whom we now know to be Isaac. Now, before we jump into, for our last few minutes, a, a few verses of <clears throat> chapter 17, turn back with me, if you will, to Galatians chapter 4, where Paul in the New Testament <clears throat> looks back at this situation in Genesis chapter 16, and he gives us insight 
into how God viewed this situation. <clears throat> so Genesis, excuse me, Galatians chapter 4, verse 21. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> do you not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by the bondwoman, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through the promise. So God <clears throat> already is not recognizing Ishmael as anything but a product of the flesh. Which things are symbolic, verse 24, for these are the two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is and is in bondage with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all, for it is written, Rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear, break forth and shout, you are not in labor, for the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are children of promise. But as he who was born according to the flesh then persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, even so it is now. Nevertheless, what does the scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. So what does all this remind us of as Paul looks back in the spirit at the situation? He says God didn't recognize Ishmael. Ishmael was a product of the flesh, the flesh and the spirit. And he says here uh, in this passage of scripture, when you go back and read the whole thing, he says this is an allegory. This is now uh, telling us that it's like the law and the spirit. It's like the flesh and the spirit. And when we choose to do things in the flesh versus in the spirit, there will be severe and dire consequences. The flesh leads us to the law. The flesh leads us to bondage. But the spirit leads us to life and to peace. It reminds us that God does not need my help. God doesn't need your help. We need to be patient and wait and not act out of impatience. Christian, are you contemplating an expediency to obtain what you imagine to be God's will in your most treasured relationship, in a friendship, in a professional pursuit, in your career, in your education, in your ministry? If so, take a deep breath, stand back, take some time, read God's word, Think, pray, and obey the revealed will of God. Now, quickly as we move into chapter 17, just down to verse 8, just to kind of continue the context here, and we'll pick it up there next week. In Genesis 17, 1, it says, When Abram was 99 years old. Now, there's a 13-year gap between chapter 16, verse 16, and, and chapter 17, verse 1. The question for us becomes, what happened in that 13 years? Abram had already been in the land for 10 years. Now, through the process of the, the birth of Ishmael, now you add another year, that's 11 or so. Now, you've got another 13 years down the road. Now, Abram's 99. Remember, when God spoke to him, he was 75. Now he's 99, 24 years after God spoke to him. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram. Makes you wonder, did God not appear to him for those 13 plus years? You know, we aren't told, but what if he didn't? The Lord appeared to Abram when he was 99 and said, I am Almighty God, El Shaddai. First time this name is used. I am the Almighty God. Walk before me, Abraham, Abram rather, and be blameless. And I will make my covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly. Now, wait a minute. Hadn't God already made his covenant with him? He had. But God's about to do a new thing. Then Abram fell on his face. And God talked with him, saying, 
Now listen, when you read these words in Scripture where you, you know, and God talked with him, and we see that where, where God often speaks to people in the Scriptures, we need to pay attention. As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of many nations. Almost every time we see the Lord speaking directly to someone, it's God reaching out to that person, isn't it? It's God initiating and man responding. As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of many nations. So he's reaffirming what he's already spoken. And Genesis 17, 5, no longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. So you see, up to this point, God's been promising Abram that, you know, okay, I'm going to bless you. You're going to have, you know, kids, uh, you know, through you, I'm going to, to bring a nation. But now as God is speaking to him, if you go back and you read all those times that God has spoken to him previously, you get a sense that the way God is saying this is that it's different. There's something different about it. The name Abram means exalted father, but the name Abraham means father of many nations. So as God is speaking to now Abraham and he changes his name, and he tells him these things. Now you get the sense that God's about ready to do it. And he says, I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make nations of you and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you and their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. Now, verse seven, if you write in your Bible, I would encourage you to underline it or highlight it, and if you don't, then now's a good time to start. Let me read verse 7 to you again, because it's very important. I will establish my covenant between me and you, and your descendants after you, in their generations, for an everlasting covenant, to be God to you and to your descendants after you. In other words, this covenant would never end. In other words, there's a thing in the church today, it's been around for a number of years, called replacement theology, where people look at Israel and they say, because Israel rejected the Messiah, Jesus Christ, there in the New Testament, that God is done with Israel, he's done with them, he's cast them aside. In fact, Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11, when you stop and read that carefully, Romans chapter 9 deals with Israel's past, Romans chapter 10 deals with Israel's present, and Romans chapter 11 deals with Israel's future. And in those three chapters, Paul refers back to these things that we're talking about right now, and he says, God is not done with Israel. Genesis 17:7 tells us, reminds us, promises us that God formed an everlasting covenant with Abraham. It wasn't a temporary covenant. It wasn't a covenant that had an expiration date at the end of some dispensation that people define. It's an everlasting covenant. God's hand would be upon the Israeli people, upon the Jewish people forever and ever and ever. And to be God to you and to your descendants after you, and also I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So God is saying there, Israel's mine, the people of the land of Israel is mine, all of the descendants of Abraham forever and ever who would be called by his name, they are mine. They are my people, the people of God. And God has set his seal upon them. Now we're going to stop there. Next week we'll pick it up with the sign or the promise of circumcision as what he now defines this, this new uh, phase of the covenant by, he defines it by circumcision. But such an exciting thing that we're learning as we go through these areas of Scripture together, speaking to us about life, faith, hope, and impatience. And we see where impatience leads. So there's a huge object lesson for, here this mo- for us here this morning to, uh, to allow the Lord to work, to trust in him, to wait for him, 
to not think we need to help God or to speed up what he's doing. God will in his time and in his way do what he is wanting to do. And yes, he does not need any help from you or me to do it. Amen. So Lord, as we uh, just come to the end of this, this scripture this morning, we're just so excited and so thankful that you've spoken to us. And Lord, you've told us things perhaps we've never heard or maybe reminded us of things that we already knew. And God, may we look to you in faithfulness and may we be patient in hope. And may we realize that in your time, you will bring these things to pass, whatever they are, whether it's the promises of your word that are documented for all of us or whether it's things in our own lives that haven't yet happened and we have to wait for you in your time to bring these things to, to pass. And so, Lord, may we be faithful, may we be patient, and may we look to heaven. Lord, you have a beautiful scripture there in the book of Psalms for us. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Lord, we, we can't do anything apart from you, you tell us in John 15. He says, you said, for apart from me, you can do nothing. May we learn that lesson here and now today and not have to repeat it and learn the painful consequences or, or reap the undesirable fruit later in our lives. May we trust in you. May we have faith in our great God, the almighty God, the God who sees. And so, Lord, we love you. We bless you in Jesus' name. Amen.